Hey there. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? All right. I'm like, I look like a solar salesperson or something. Like, I'm going to sell you. Well, it's you. good that I know you're coming. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not trying to sell you anything. Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you, yeah, person. Yeah, you too. Come on, Anne. Thought we could sit outside. That's yeah, that's good. great. Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show from Pasadena, California, that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I am proud to welcome guide, curator, and historian, Julia Long. A native of Pasadena, Julia attended local schools and developed a love of art and history at an early age, having been influenced by her supportive parents and a good elementary school teacher. Wanting to escape Southern California, she graduated from the University of Toronto with her degree in art history, English literature, and philosophy. Julia would then earn a postgraduate certificate from the Ironbridge International Institute for Cultural Heritage at the University of Birmingham, and then a master's in history and visual culture from the University of Oxford. After working in Los Angeles for the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, Julia embarked on a career that would take her to Canada, Europe, and then back here to Pasadena. Developing her skills as a storyteller, she worked for LA Walking Tours, all the while serving as a freelance museum professional, using art and clothing to inform and enlighten. Her work continues with diverse projects, from the National Museum of Military Vehicles to serving as the collections manager and curator for Academy Award-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter. During COVID, Julia launched Exploring Pasadena, a narrated walking tour project aimed at sharing stories about her hometown and how it's such an interesting place to live and visit. She has hosted tours at the historic Macy's Building on South Lake Avenue and had a series on the women who shaped Pasadena, amongst many others. This summer, Julia embarked on a new role with the Pasadena Museum of History as curator of history and exhibitions. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear more about an exciting exhibit she is curating next year to celebrate the museum's centennial. So, without further delay, my conversation with Exploring Pasadena's Julia Long. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So to get us started, can you share a little bit about your background as I know you were born and raised in Pasadena and went to Westridge for high school? I did. That's true. I loved growing up in Pasadena. I actually went to Chandler for elementary school and Westridge for high, middle and high school. And I, I was very involved with the arts, music, theater, did all of the plays, all of the musicals at Westridge. And I was in the Los Angeles Children's Chorus. So I had a pretty busy life growing up. But yeah, Pasadena is a wonderful place to grow up. But it was, let's just say this, I wasn't ever intending to live in Pasadena or L.A. I was anxious to get out as soon as I could. So I hightailed it out of here trying to find better places in the world and then eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, what's not so bad? (laughs) Southern California. (laughs) So yeah, that's we've come full circle. I can certainly relate to that. I went to school, I went to college back east because I figured that was probably the furthest I could go 
to get away from Los Angeles. You went a little bit further. You went to Canada. So, but yeah, I never thought I would be back in Southern California, let alone Los Angeles. But here we are, like we said. So based on your interests, you must have had some strong influences. So who are some early mentors that were especially important? And we, before we started recording, we just learned that both our fathers are architects. So that was probably an influence. But who are some other people that were especially important? Yeah, I have to mention my parents first, I think both professionally as well as obviously emotionally and uh, in terms of a support system. My parents have really been there for absolutely everything I ever wanted to do, anything I wanted to try. They were the in the front row. Every play I ever did, I think they were at every single performance. All of the concerts, my dad used to videotape all of our concerts. So we have all the VHS tapes of everything we've ever done. So for both my brother and I, my parents were always incredibly supportive. But I think the other important thing that they did was to introduce us uh, to a variety of different things when we were very young. Uh, My dad is from London, England, and so we traveled there a lot when I was a kid. And my parents always took us to museums and historic houses. And so we grew up from a very young age, being very comfortable in those settings. And I always loved history. And so that was an interest that was really supported very much by my parents. And anything that I asked questions about or became interested in, my dad would buy me books about them or we'd watch movies, documentaries. So there was always a lot of fun learning, I guess I'd call it, going on in our household. So nothing that was prescribed or imposed on us, but definitely going along with my brother studied music, he studied film. So there was always sort of new things being introduced into our sort of family life at home. My parents have continued to be the biggest supporters of everything that I do, everything my brother does. So we're really very lucky uh, in that sense. I think also I had a couple teachers here and there that I would say were major influences. In particular, I had one in elementary school at Chandler, Mr. Morrison, who was my history teacher. And he was just the way that he taught history uh, as this story really captivated me. And I loved the projects that we did in the class and the essays that we wrote. So that was really, I think, the first time that I thought about incorporating history as a, something in a career, some sort of looking forward and thinking, what could I possibly do with my life? I always knew I didn't want to be a teacher. (laughs) That was something that my mom was a teacher and I always said, I'm not doing (laughs) that in terms of elementary school, high school. But I always liked history. And so there was this seed that was planted that, that helped me to think creatively as I grew up and studied more. So you have a really interesting academic story. We talked about how you left Pasadena. You studied at the University of Toronto and studied history, English, literature, and philosophy. So it sounds like you were always interested in art and history. That came from an early age. Is that correct? I think that it's safe to say that is true. However, I didn't really ever consider that as a possibility when I was growing up. I think I was always interested in history, but art was a in-the-background kind of thing always. And I actually... Funny thing is that my mom was an art, she studied art history, she majored in art history, and I didn't even know that until I decided to do it. So it really was something that was always present in our lives, but never something that was pushed down our throats, basically. So I think my undergraduate career was interesting because in Canadian schools, it's unlike American schools, you don't have general ed requirements. 
So you go in and you can pretty much just take anything and everything you want to take. And I went to a large school, University of Toronto, so there was just inexhaustible options. And the reason I ended up with two minors and a major is because I changed my major several times. So I thought maybe I'll major in philosophy, maybe I'll major in English. And so I ended up with minors in those. And then my last two years focused solely on art history. And the reason that I really was captivated by art history was because it was studying history through a material culture perspective. So basically looking at humans, what do people think is, is valuable? What do people hold on to? What do they choose to incorporate in their fine arts? What do they keep in their homes? And from a very early age, I was always interested in fashion history and costume. So that became my focus as I continued on in my studies. You started your career at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising here in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and then embarked on a path that has taken you to England and back. And a thread throughout has been your involvement in collections and ex exhibits. So what attracted you to working with museums? Again, it wasn't something that I necessarily was planning on. In my last year of university in Toronto, I ended up taking a class at a a museum, the Royal Ontario Museum with the fashion and textiles department. So I was actually going into the museum for this class, studying their collections and learning a little bit more about what it meant to work in a museum, to work with collections. I ended up interning with them after that and that really helped me with getting the job at FITM, at the FITM Museum in Los Angeles because I had, I had already had this experience working as an intern. So one of the great things about interning is that you really get exposed to anything and everything that's going on where you are. So sometimes you're making posters, sometimes you're cataloging things, sometimes. So it really depends on what's happening at the time. So I was exposed to a lot of different things. And one of the great things about working at the FITM Museum when I did was that it was a very small staff, small staff at the museum. So we all did everything. We all worked on the exhibitions. We all did um, cataloging of the collections that were coming in. We all did our own research. We all had the chance to present papers and go to conferences. So it was really the best introduction I could have to working in museums because I got to say, okay, I'm interested in that part, but not so much that part. <laughs> and as it's turned out, I've ended up doing kind of a little bit of everything, but there's definitely aspects of it that, that I've gravitated more towards and that I've tried to you know, direct myself more towards as I've gone forward in my career. I'm a fellow researcher, and what I try to do with each guest is I try to find out as much as possible about them. And so you've been quoted and described in a couple of different sources. And so you've been called a exhibition or exhibit curator, a art historian, a tour guide, and my favorite was one, which was a history sleuth. But you've also been a researcher and you've owned your own flower arrangement company. So how would you define what you do? <laughs> I guess the best way of defining it is anything and everything that comes up. I think when I was in college, in undergrad, I always knew that I didn't want a full-time job. That was never something that was my goal. And that was proven as I entered the workforce. And I knew that it really wasn't a space that I was comfortable in. 20 years ago at that time, it was really not as nearly as common as it is now to work freelance, to do multiple sort of part-time jobs. So the fact that was something that kind of became more normalized as I grew in my career has really been fortuitous and just convenient for me. So I think that's something that I lost my train of thought. 
What was the question again? question was, how would you define what you do? <laughs> that, there you go. That's, that's really it in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I'm going to totally leave that in, by the way. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that when I describe what I what I love to do, that my favorite things to do, history sleuth is probably as good and uh, a descriptor as anything. I love researching. I love diving down rabbit holes of research and, and figuring out all different kinds of uh, information that I didn't go there to find in the first place. And I think that's really what I've loved about creating walking tours. That really became something that uh, allowed me to learn about my hometown, about Pasadena and Los Angeles, in a way that I never had before. I think that kind of, you know, my own, my only sort of criticism, I guess, of my education growing up was that I knew n nothing about Southern California history. We had studied kind of California history in, in elementary school and I built a mission. But, we all did. Yeah, exactly. At the time. But like I, that was, it was never a history that I connected with. There weren't really women in it as much as obviously a lot of men. There was a glossing over of a lot of parts of it and we didn't really ever dive into sort of what was life actually like for a lot of these people. So it wasn't until I started creating walking tours that I really started learning more about LA and Pasadena history. So it's been that sort of treasure hunt of finding bits of information that I didn't know before, which means that probably nobody else knew before. So it's a nice way of encapsulating things. So I think as a whole, my goal has been to figure out how to how to tell the stories of history in a broad sense in a way that is interesting that is digestible that a broad sort of subset of the population finds interesting so whether that's in a sort of a bite-sized 2-hour walking tour or in a an exhibition i'm always thinking about how to present information so i love the research part for me but a lot of what I do is really about, okay, so that's great and everything, but how are you going to then share that information? What's the best way of sharing it? This sends me down a rabbit hole, this whole conversation, because <laughs> history is a fire hose. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I've tried to do is that sometimes guests don't line up correctly. And like it takes six months to get a guest on just because of scheduling. And so I'm like, how do I fill that time? And one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I'll release an episode, I think either July or August, is about a coffee shop called Fisher's mm -hmm. that used to be on Colorado. And that brought me back to there was a Vandy Camp coffee shop that was on the corner of Bonnie mm -hmm. and Colorado. And it started out as a Dutch market in 1927. Uh -huh. And so now it's a Chick-fil-A. And it's like, I had no idea that was there. I bet you 99.9% .9 of people knew that it's there. And there's a picture of it online, and it's gorgeous, mm -hmm. of the Vandy Camps. And sadly, now it's a Chick-fil-A. But it's just one of those things where I didn't anticipate finding Fishers or even Vandy Camps. But again, it's a fire hose. You turn it on. I have a subscription to newspapers.com, which is an old resource. Mm -hmm. They have old, they don't have a lot of Pasadena-based newspapers, but they have some Pasadena Post, which was an mm -hmm. old newspaper. And it's just like you can go through every single page of, every, of, of that newspaper in 1945 and find something interesting to read about and learn about. And so it's hard to, okay, the fire hose is on. How do I pull a story out of the water here and yeah. tell that in a way that makes sense? Absolutely. And that's always the difficult part is saying, I think this is interesting. Is anybody else going to think this is interesting? <laughs> right. So that's really been, I would say, the constant testing ground of what I do is seeing, all right, 
I'm getting really into this story, but maybe it's a little much to share with people. And how do you pare things down? How do you decide what's going to be something that resonates with people? And I think that for the most part, what I've found are the stories about people is really what you can wrap your mind around. And I think that's also very similar to the most of the museum work that I do, which is with fashion and textiles, because exhibitions that include clothing are always something that are popular. Everybody loves them because, for a variety of reasons, depending on the exhibition, but I think that at the core, everybody wears clothes. So everybody understands clothes to a degree. So you're starting at a higher level of comprehension than a lot of museum exhibitions. A lot of museum exhibitions, particularly art exhibitions, a lot of people say, I don't know anything about art, so I'm not going to see that. I don't like, I don't like that. That, weir- that new stuff is weird, so I don't want to see that. So there's always these preconceived notions that you have about what you're going to like and what you're not going to like. And a lot of people aren't going to try things that they think they're not going to like, especially if they're expensive to go into, which a lot of museums are nowadays. And so starting with, with that sort of uh, literally material culture, that thing that people feel like, okay, I understand what it is to wear a shirt and pants and jacket. And so it's not that as much of a leap to understand what it looked like in the past or what it looks like in a movie or in a play. So it's really that same sense of bringing it down, not down, but bringing it to people's daily comprehension of the world. How are they going to see something and say, okay, I can see myself in that, or I can see reflections of my mother or my grandmother or something. And I think that's probably the main reason why I didn't connect with a lot of California history when I was in, when I was young, when I was in elementary school, because there was nothing that I could connect to. I didn't understand what it was like to be a governor or a Franciscan monk, or there was a lot that I wasn't able to connect to. So it wasn't really until I started studying in particular women's history in LA and Pasadena that I thought, okay, wow. So there were a lot of women here and nobody has talked about them basically. (laughs) So here they are. And that's been one of the most rewarding parts of doing the walking tours about women's history, because most people know absolutely nothing about most of the women who have lived in this part of the world. And most of them were pretty incredible people who did all kinds of different things. Talk about a multi-hyphenate. These women were just all over the place. So that's probably been um, one of the most uh, kind of rewarding parts of what I've been doing in the past few years. My oldest daughter is nine, and she we have all these books on women that are in history and all that kind of stuff. And so she'll be like, oh, I'm reading this and about this person. I'm like, I don't know who that is. I've never heard of that person before. Mm-hmm. And, and I have three daughters. So I want them to understand these stories and, and appreciate them. It was interesting. I never really thought about clothing, clothing as being important. But in an exhibit, if you look at a picture, it's 2D. It's mostly black and white. But a piece of clothing, you can walk around. Mm-hmm. It's 3D. It's in color, which really helps. Absolutely. Because you realize that the world wasn't black and white. It was very colorful. Yeah. And I think people don't appreciate that just because of the technology. Yeah. I think Um, anything material culture-wise, if you can incorporate things that are three-dimensional into exhibitions or anything that you're doing that is trying to help people understand a different time period in particular, it really makes a difference. So you're a freelance curator. And so what is that like? Because I think... We were emailing a couple months ago, and you were in Wyoming doing a project. What is a freelance curator's life like? Busy. (laughs) 
I do a sort of a range of different things. So primarily, if you want to get down to brass tacks, essentially, I what I do for a living is I dress mannequins. But that incorporates a lot of different things depending on the project. So the projects that I do in Wyoming are with a military history museum. So it's the National Museum of Military Vehicles. And I go in anytime they... We're looking at your coffee cup. Yeah, my coffee cup. Yeah, it's the only... It's the, I bought it the first time I went and it has a tank on it because they have multiple tanks there. And the whole museum was built around buying tanks and having this display. So they have people on staff who, who know a lot about military history, but they didn't have anybody on staff who knew how to literally put uniforms on mannequins. So they bring me in every time they have uniforms going on display. So I've done pieces from Vietnam, Korea, the women's various Red Cross designations in Second World War. And I just did some Navy uniforms and all kinds of different things that are going up. And with those jobs, it's actually the easiest job that I have because I literally just go in and I dress the mannequins and then I leave. So it's really nice. And they give me the leeway to be able to control my time and my my tasks. Other jobs that I do, I'm much more involved in the planning process and the curation aspect. So it's I can I work with people from the planning stages of literally selecting mannequins, sourcing mannequins, figuring out the measurements of different pieces. Is that going to work? Is it not? Is it how many pieces are you going to have on display? What do they look like? And I have done that for museums. I've also done it for for Hollywood, for different displays that have gone up for celebrating movies or television shows. I just did one last week for the TV show Poker Face, which they are hoping will be nominate, nominated and voted in for Emmys in a couple of months. So they were doing what they call for your consideration events. So I was dressing mannequins for that. So it really depends on the event. Probably one of the most prominent things that I do is I work with costume designer Ruth Carter, who is now a two-time Academy Award-winning costume designer, and I manage her archive. So what that means is basically anytime her costumes go on display, I'm in charge of either managing it, actually doing it, or and communicating with people who are putting it up. I also manage her traveling exhibition, so I talk with new venues, I go through the entire process with them, figuring out the contract, figuring out shipping, figuring out the installation period, any merchandising, marketing, events that are coming up, interviews. So that is probably the biggest project that I do along those lines. And then other things are more project-based. So I am just started working with the Pasadena Museum of History, and I will be doing exhibitions with them as the Curator of History and Exhibitions. That is my official title. So that's brand new, and we have some exciting projects in the work that I can't talk about yet, but definitely keep an eye on the Pasadena Museum of History and see what is upcoming in the next year and a couple years. So yeah, it's a very broad designation, and what I do is all over the place, really, but it's very much this little niche world that exists, but I I don't think most people would really know that it exists. So (laughs) it's very exciting that you're joining the museum as a curator. So talking about museums and the impact of COVID a little bit, most museums had to close. I think the Pasadena Museum of History had like a virtual Mm -hmm. exhibit at one point where you can virtually walk around a room and look at different 
exhibits yeah. and pictures on virtual walls, which I thought was interesting. So what do you, th- you think are, are the lasting effects that COVID will have on just museums and how we interact with them? Virtual exhibits existed pre-COVID, but I think they obviously came to the forefront a lot more during COVID because a lot of museums didn't have anything else they could do, basically. Some of them were able to to have various Zoom presentations and that kind of thing. Uh, I actually worked with the Pasadena Museum of History at the time doing walking tours outside, which were some of the only programs that they had during COVID. But I think museums have already, in the past, I would say, at least 10 to 20 years, they've already started marching towards that idea of having more immersive experiences, more virtual content. And what's great about having something that's online or something that you access through a QR code on your phone in the exhibition is that it can widen the reach a lot more than you can have in a literal three-dimensional space. It also means you can reach more people. Virtual exhibitions are great because you don't have to literally go to a museum to see them. So it means that more people can enjoy them. Obviously, accessibility issues are always something that museums have to think about. Most museums are not rolling in money, so they have to be very choosy and very selective about what they put in the galleries and the kinds of opportunities that they offer to their visitors, to their guests. So I think that personally, any museum that that incorporates new technology as much as possible, new sort of trends in what's popular is a smart museum. I think that these this sort of trend lately of these immersive artist experiences, the Van Gogh, the Monet, the Klimt, all of these different experiences. I was a little skeptical at first, um, but then I went to the Van Gogh one. And I have to say, it was really, as an art historian, it was really incredible to see um, because you had people experiencing art in a way that I experience art. I think that it's magical to go to a museum and see paintings, but that's not how a lot of people experience it. But this was something that made it accessible. It made it comprehensible in a way that didn't involve a lot of text or a documentary that you had to watch. It was animating these works of art so that you really understood the paint application and the time period and the different impact of light and that kind of thing. So watching kids touching the walls during these projections and really being captivated by the way that the art was being portrayed, I thought was pretty incredible. And I think that it's something that the smart museums are starting to pay attention to and realize maybe we need to have more things that people feel are immersive. And nowadays you have... Most people's lives are just so hectic, so busy, and a lot of people think, I'm not going to spend $35 to go to a museum exhibition if I don't really want to see it. But if you make it something that feels transportable, something that is that really takes you out of your daily life and makes you feel like you've had a breath of fresh air, I think that it, it will attract more and more people and make it so that museums don't end up disappearing or, or becoming obsolete. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into museums at this stage. There's a lot of things that people had to come to terms with during COVID that they had maybe been putting off for a while. And now it really is upfront and in your face that, you know, you're not going to be able to function, to keep functioning the way you've been functioning. You have to start thinking creatively and start trying to appeal to a wider variety wider range of people so a lot of museums now have simultaneous programming where they'll have 
in-person exhibitions and events, but they also have a lot of virtual options that are available for free on their website or for a small fee for Zoom talks, that kind of thing. So it's a multi-layered approach, which I think is really exciting. It's an exciting time. I've been very fortunate. I've gone to some of the probably the most amazing museums and, and art exhibits in, my, in the world. Florence, Paris, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a little kid, you're like, that's great. You walk past and you're like, that's great. I don't really care. But you're like five years old or seven years old or whatever. And you don't appreciate it. But like you said, the kid touching something on a wall mm-hmm. and having that wall come to life and react to you. Used to seeing pictures in books and now online. But you go to museums and you realize how small the pictures are and the paintings are. Yeah. Then you walk into a room and there's like 100 people trying to get a glimpse of the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa is like how many inches by how many inches. Covered in bulletproof and, glass. And, right. <laughs> and it's not approachable. Mm-mm. And so you need to bring the art to people in a way that they can connect with. Yeah, that's really where museums came from, is this idea of exposing a variety of people to fine art. And obviously, museums have developed much further since then. But it really is about making it something that people feel welcome. They feel like they can walk into a museum and they can experience whatever takes their fancy. And I think when I lived in London for a little while, and I've spent a lot of time in London, and the fact that the majority of the museums there are free, you can just say, I'm just going to pop in for 20 minutes. And you just wander a little bit, you expose yourself to a little bit of something. And I think that accessibility changes the game for a lot of people. If you go to the Met in New York, if you go, there's a lot of museums that have a focus on welcoming people in and making it something that is very approachable to a lot of people who maybe don't feel as comfortable going into museums. It's a come on in, maybe you'll like it and try it out approach that I think is hopefully the way a lot of museums will try to go in the future, whether by literally making it more accessible financially or by making it more accessible in terms of the bang for the buck, what you're getting when you try to go. Having that ability to just walk in and walk out is very cool. And, and I think that's yeah. something that I hope that is the case, that the direction of the, the museum industry is going. So I thought it'd be a good transition to talking about walking tours since we're just walking mm. in and out of museums. Before we get into the walking tour component, I want to talk to you about something that's central in your work and you've talked about, which is storytelling. So is there a key to telling an engaging story? I think that the jumping off point, literally the first thing to start with is the amount of energy that you have when you're telling the story. I feel like doing walking tours for the past almost seven years at this point... There have been a lot of times when I haven't felt so great or I've been overwhelmed with a lot of things or I've been really busy and I've had a lot on my mind, but it's really night and day if I'm able to take a deep breath and just elevate that energy level before I start versus if I don't make that effort and I'm just like sleepwalking through, that's what it feels like to the people who are on it. And so it's like, oh, it's fine. Like The information is the same, but the experience is completely different. So I think that I always start with trying to exude how excited I am about sharing the information, about how much I love researching and how much I love discovering these stories. And then I think that figuring out literally how to tell them is it has come 
over the years is really figuring out how do you structure a story, particularly if it's a long story, if it's something that you need people to pay attention to for a decent amount of time, at least five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, you have to have sort of these benchmarks in the story and, and go back and repeat some things and kind of remind people, remember, this guy said this. So I think that it's it's something that I've that I feel very comfortable doing. And I think that to a degree, it comes naturally to me. I do think that growing up the way I did, going to schools that really prioritized being able to stand up and speak for yourself, public speaking, Westridge is definitely all about being able to confidently express yourself as a woman, particular for Westridge, but anybody really. I think that I very early on honed this ability to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about most of the time. And I think that art history is great at that also, where you're, no, this is what this means. And this is what it, and it's uh, so much of it is subjective. So much of it is just like, yeah, I think so. But I try not to ever be didactic about it. But I think that there is a lot to how you express what you're saying and how confident you are. Because I focus so much on research and on accuracy in, in what uh, the information that I'm sharing, I always feel confident in how I'm sharing it, where I'm, I'm sort of, I'm never saying, I think this is true, but I'm not 100% sure. If it's something that I'm not 100% sure about, it really depends on what it is. If I still think it's really interesting, I'll say, I don't know about this, or this might be apocryphal, or this might be the, somebody... The, their enemy made up or something, but this is the story. And so I think that it's all about framing. It's all about talking to people as if, not, not talking down to people, talking to people like they, you know, can meet you in the middle and understand what you're talking about. You were a content manager for LA Walking Tours and are now the founder of Exploring Pasadena. That was really in downtown LA. I moved back to LA seven years ago after moving around a lot. I was living in Canada, I lived in Europe, I lived in other parts of California, and still constantly, I'm never living in LA, it's never happening. And ended up coming back for what was supposed to be just a couple of months, and then started creating a walking tour for LA Walking Tours. At the time, it was DTLA Walking Tours, downtown LA Walking Tours. And I started doing research for a tour in the fashion district, and really enjoyed the process of creating a tour and then leading the tour and I have always loved that aspect of it the part that I didn't love so much was doing that tour multiple times ad nauseum not ad nauseum but you know as the same tour multiple times that was something that I wasn't as excited about so the reason I veered more towards content management and creation was that I love the research part of it I love finding those stories and putting them in ways that is exciting and interesting to people. And then ended up realizing if there's all these great stories in Los Angeles, there must be great stories in Pasadena too. And originally when I started doing walking tours in Pasadena, I wasn't planning on doing anything in old Pasadena. Basically, I figured if anybody knows anything about old about Pasadena, that's what they know about. And that's what there is the most saturation about out there. And so I wanted to do all of these other parts. I just thought there's all of these other neighborhoods, all of these other districts that I wanted to focus on. And so it really was this conscious effort to try to share more of that information um, about Pasadena and simultaneously Los Angeles. 
Since launching Exploring Pasadena, you've hosted tours around the history of women in Pasadena. We talked about that a little bit, especially during Women's History Month, and then hosted a behind-the-scenes tour of the Macy's on South Lake Avenue, to name just a few. You even did a virtual one during the pandemic for Westridge, where you highlighted, is it Pancho Barnes? I say Pancho, Pancho Barnes. Who is a pioneer woman aviator and a Westridge alum, yeah, which is very cool. Yeah. What stories or tours most interest you? Like I said before, it's really the women's history tours yeah. that I love the most. But I can usually get into pretty much any tour. It's I've had a variety of different focuses. So sometimes it's a thematic tour. Sometimes it's a locational tour. So the I did a tour last weekend with the Pasadena Museum of History about South Orange Grove Avenue. I like finding places in Pasadena that people wouldn't necessarily think of when they think of a walking tour. So you might think about the Gamble House area as, a, yeah, sure, of course there's a walking tour there. And I have done that area also. But I like choosing areas that are, have a lot more hidden, a lot of places that are going to surprise people. So I've done, I did a tour last summer of the southern part of Pasadena, south of Central Park. So this warehousey, no man's kind of zone. And talking about what used to be there that's not anymore is a unique type of walking tour because you're asking people to use their imaginations more to look at photos and picture what used to be there versus now you're looking at this and I'll tell you about this. So it really is a, a wide range of different types of tours that I do. And it, every tour is about figuring out, okay, how are you going to, how are you going to tell this story? How are you going to talk to people for multiple blocks where there's actually nothing to look at so it really depends and that was actually where virtual tours were really handy during the pandemic because virtual tours you can bebop all over town without actually having to walk it you can talk about people from miles away and it doesn't matter it's fine so that was an interesting set of restrictions also is how who do you include who do you not include if there's no physical restrictions where you're trying to stay within two hours and one mile and no major uphills no major downhills now are there bathrooms nearby are there all of the things that you have to think about so i think that i love the thematic tours because i really have always loved that type of writing that type of um, exploration where you say okay i'm just gonna look at plants i did i've done several tours on botanical pasadena so i'm just going to talk about the trees and the flowers and the plants and that sort of opens up a new door into all of these things that you never thought about before and uh so that's it, it really i can't think of a tour that i've created that i haven't gotten into particularly in pasadena i think pasadena has a really interesting multi-layered history. It's interesting you mentioned the the Central Park tour because that area historically was the African-American neighborhood. It wasn't just African-American. It was anyone and everyone who wasn't welcome anywhere else. That's right. Basically. And so <laughs> Friendship Baptist is still there, but my office is right on Waverly. So Wonderful. we're I You're see, in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm in there. But it, that neighborhood, there's not, other than a couple of buildings, there's not much left. No. no. Other than the building where the Onyx Club was, mm -hmm. There was, there are not that many remnants of that no. old neighborhood. But there's more than you than a lot of people realize. I'm sure. And it's a, a lot of it. A lot of the time, you'll be reading about a building, and then you eventually realize, oh, that's the same building that's there. It just looks completely different now because they shaved off everything and they repainted it. And on that tour, I found that there was enough still standing mm. to keep having things that were 
you can look at this right now and that is the actual house or that is the actual building. And then enough that was a look at this and I'll take you back and you can imagine what this was. And I think that part of Pasadena, most people know nothing about. It really is. It's a, you go to Whole Foods, you go to, it's, it really is this hospital area that people are, wait, there's history here? And actually there's some of the most interesting history in Pasadena in that area. So well, I try to describe where my office is located. I'm like, it's south of old Pasadena. It's above the hospital. And then people are like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like then no one it's like And then when they get there, I'm sure they're like, Oh here. Yeah. I never thought about here. Right. It's <laughs> next to the auto place, but then there's a school in the middle. It's a very odd area. Yeah. So the city of Pasadena is one large museum exhibit, is the kind of how I think about mm-hmm. it. And it takes time to see and appreciate it. As a Pasadena native, I'm from Los Angeles, so I'm a, not a native Pasadena person. But the reason why I moved to Pasadena is because it had more history. Mm-hmm. Growing up, we took trips back east. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, why don't we have this in California? I'm like, because there's like, I'm like, there's no history in California. But it's like. Yeah, that's why I was going to move away. Right, exactly. It doesn't exist. I'm leaving. <laughs> no, that's why I loved going to D.C. And because it's like you can walk down a street and yeah, the buildings are different, but they're, they're still enough of it where you're like, this is hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. So as a Pasadena native, do you feel a responsibility to showcase the city and educate people about it? I do. And I think that I, if you boil it down, that is the larger purpose of starting to do walking tours. And actually, I would say it's an even larger purpose of exploring Pasadena itself. So the way, the existence of exploring Pasadena at this point is really mostly walking tours. But the idea of it was a little bit more broad than that, because I think that you do have this incredible multi-layered history in Pasadena, and you do have a lot of people, particularly younger people, young professionals, people with young families, who are choosing to move to Pasadena because of a lot of reasons, but I think that if you really sit them down and talk to a lot of people about it, much of it is the history. They might not say that initially. They might say, oh, I love old Pasadena. I love walking around and going to the different restaurants and shopping. Um, but then when you actually narrow it down, it's, well, I like the architecture or I like the trees or I like the different neighborhoods and the variety of different you know, residential architectural styles. And all of these things have roots in the history of Pasadena and why it exists the way it exists, why it grew up the way it grew up. And Pasadena is incredibly unique in that sense. Sense. It, it is a city with a history like no other city. You have a, a sort of small agricultural community that ended up becoming a major resort destination that as a result becomes this destination for the wealthiest people of the entire country and other parts of the world and then celebrities. And then so you have people who have touched history in Pasadena in a way that no other place has. And I think that If you can tap into that in a way that is accessible to people and interesting to people, um, I think that you will get a lot more people who are invested, actively invested in the preservation of Pasadena. So I think my goal has always been to educate people lightly because the people who really want to know about the history are already researching it. They already do those deep dives. That's true. The people who like being in this space but aren't necessarily going to go read a book about it. They are the people who often will go on walking tours. And my goal is to expand it, make it something, maybe we do pub quizzes, maybe we do small sort of 
informational signs in restaurants or bars. Maybe we do like, and we talk about the history of wineries in Pasadena. So there's, I think, a way of incorporating existing Pasadena and connecting it to the past. And I think one of my, one of the things I've loved about doing walking tours in Pasadena are the collaborations that I've been able to do, the people I've been able to work with. And that's everything from the business improvement districts, the marketing teams, to individual business owners. And the Macy's team was amazing when I did the the South Lake tour um, in the former Bullocks Pasadena, and they were great to work with. And they obviously have their goals of they want to They want people to come in and buy things, but they also want to share their space. And so they were happy to work to do that. So I think that goal of kind of capturing people's attention and then bringing them in to, if you like this, then you should probably maybe be at least a little bit aware of what it will take to save it and what it will take to continue to make it livable. And the library, Central Library is the main example right now of something that needs a lot of help is going to take a long time to get to get to that sort of finishing state and keeping people interested over long periods is difficult but if we can keep the goals of organizations like Pasadena Heritage going so that people say all right if I want to live here and I want it to keep looking like this then these are the things that need to happen but in a fun way we'll do it with cocktails and snacks so these are two questions are coupled together but do you have a favorite part of town that you find especially fascinating? And we talked about the Central Park area, but is there another part of town that you find interesting? And then the second part of this question, is there an architectural style that's especially interesting to you? Because there's so many in Pasadena, right? Greek Revival, we have Craftsmen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of neighborhoods, I don't know that there's a neighborhood in Pasadena that I don't like, but I like whatever I haven't looked at yet is what it comes down to. So I love resurrecting things that I've done. But for anybody who's been on a tour with me, you'll know that if you've been on a tour in the past and it sounds like it's the same tour that you decide, oh, I've already been on that one. It's not the same tour because I just found six other things to add in (laughs) yesterday that I do. So the other area that I would love to do is south of that hospital area. So basically where like the power plant is, where the Raymond restaurant is, that area is fascinating because it used to be the grounds of the Raymond Hotel. And then the railroad comes in and then again, you have all of these literally what they called tent cities of people who were either temporary workers in Pasadena or people who couldn't get uh, housing anywhere else who were considered to be undesirables. But because of that, you have this incredible multi-layered history there. Um, Again, an area that there's not a lot that you can actually look at. But I think that those areas that people drive through are the areas that get me really excited. So the parts of town that you don't necessarily think of parking and walking around, but which have so much in the sidewalks that that you don't even know is there. I like Art Deco. I like Spanish Revival, which is obviously a huge umbrella term. But those are the styles that I personally love that I would, if I had millions of dollars, I would buy a house in either of those styles. But I think that when it comes to researching, I like all styles. I like learning about why something was done the way it was. I like studying Beaux-Arts buildings because I think that they're 
It's reflective of the time period when they were being built and why the decisions were being made to make this look like something that was in Chicago or New York, and then why that was turned on its head and uh, California started to embrace these styles that were much more appropriate for the lifestyle that we live here. And I always like to point out at Pasadena City Hall when I do tours there that so much of the footprint of the building is literally outside. And that was on purpose. All of this is to show off look at, we can have outdoor corridors year round. We can have outdoor um, walkways. And I think that's something that people know, they know it in the back of their minds, but they might not have thought about why it exists and the purpose of it. And a lot of it is marketing, but it, you know, but it works for us too. So I think in answer to your question, anything and everything is interesting to me, but I think learning about why it looks the way it looks, who made that decision. A lot of the millionaires row mansions that you look at photos of and you're just thinking, okay, like, sure, why wouldn't you build that in the middle of Pasadena? Of course you live in a French chateau, but it's if that's something that, that really got them fired up, then that was what they ended up doing. And so I like finding out the stories behind why something looks the way it does. So we're gonna tie this back to the museum again. A lot of people don't know that it's the Fenius estate, mm -hmm. but it's not their first home. No. Their first home was on Orange Grove, further south. And it was in a Moroccan style. Yeah. Which is like, it's perfect. Your comment was like, why not? Yeah. It literally was. And I would have loved to see Millionaire's Row. I would love to have walked down that street yeah. and just seen the variety of architectural styles. The pictures I've seen of that house are incredible. Uh -huh. And you're like, how did someone not replicate this now? So I have an interest in economics. Mm -hmm. And so I'm fascinated with like Orange Grove and like economically mm -hmm. what happened to brought to bring people there and then what happened to basically I don't want to say dissolve the old It was an active it, it was an active <laughs> I mean because <laughs> the houses were falling apart yeah. supposedly and so the the only way to revive the area was to change the zoning. So then it went to multifamily condos and apartments. But fascinating about like why that was, when that was. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that the, was it Hotel de Plaza? Was it the one that's on the- Vista del Arroyo. Thank you very much. Yeah. I always get my hotels mixed up <laughs> and names mixed up. The fact that sat vacant for years after World War II, mm -hmm. before World War II, but after World War II, is just like, that's insane to me. Because we, we were relatively the same age, I'm 43. We've only known old Pasadena as- what it is today. Mm -hmm. We don't have the stories of like the 1970s where no. people like... I do remember it at yeah. the beginning of the gentrification okay. phase. Though. I remember the early 90s where it was, I don't know if I should really be here. <laughs> and apparently it was worse before yeah. that. Yeah. But it's interesting to see the neighborhoods evolve and understand mm -hmm. the forces that are involved in all that. In fourth grade, I think it's changed now. Yeah. So I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But in fourth grade, we were required to build missions as part of the state mandate. Mm -hmm. And that was the only California history that we're, we knew, yeah. right? We only knew the missions. And so because Pasadena is so, has a, such a vibrant but also very complicated history, should we be thinking about offering school-age children classes about Pasadena so that they understand where they came from? I think so. That's always been something that I've thought should be taught. I think that you get into difficult conversations when you're talking about curriculum and state curriculums, national curriculums, what's expected of a child when they graduate from whichever grade you're talking about. So I think I understand the sort of mentality behind how can we fit in 
all of this other stuff when we already have so much that we need to include. And I think that's one of the things that I think can be supplemented by maybe uh, an organization like Exploring Pasadena or people who exist adjacent to the school districts or the parochial schools, the private schools, everything in Pasadena, where you have people who know about this stuff and you can do it in digestible bits. You can maybe do three or four walking tours over the course of a year and it's half a day's field trip as opposed to an entire curriculum that somebody needs to build. And it gives you enough. And I think that if I had that when I was in fourth grade, instead of let's learn about the missions, I think I would have connected more with Pasadena, with LA, with California as a whole, because it doesn't have to be multi- it doesn't have to be one dimensional then. It can be all of these different people were here at the same time and they were all doing all of these different things. And you can address it in a way that introduces kids so that they can say, oh, that sparks something. And then they go on and they have the door open to them. So, you know, you're not going to get every single kid excited about local history, but you are going to get a few of them excited. And I often wonder if I had been exposed to local history more as a kid, maybe I wouldn't have wanted to leave so badly. Maybe I wouldn't have been so desperate to get out of here. And who knows? But I think it would have been something definitely that I could have connected with more. So I think it's a difficult world to be in, in this world of museums and in cultural organizations, because nobody has enough money, nobody has enough reach, and nobody's able to put every great idea into play. But I think this idea of exploring Pasadena was maybe it, maybe we could bring people together and partner on things. Maybe we could work together to approach different age levels and go into the schools or do projects or whatever it is so that you do have just that introduction level for people who are then wanting to delve more in, into it. I feel like history is so dependent on the right teacher. Yeah. And... I think I've talked about this on my on this podcast, but like I loved U.S. history since I since my family went back east and mm-hmm. went to D.C. and the Williamsburg, I thought was like the most amazing place in the mm-hmm. whole world. And but I had a horrible U.S. history teacher mm-hmm. in school and turned me off history. And when I went to study political science in D.C., I was like I walked in with kids. I went to like AP history and had amazing teachers. I'm like mm-hmm. I don't know any of this. And if I had a better teacher, I'd like to think that maybe I would have studied history as a major. Maybe, what I've, maybe I would have become a writer. Like it's it, everything worked out, but it's but it mean having the right foundation and having the right teacher inspire you can change the entire course of your life. Yeah, I think that it makes a huge difference who you're exposed to and whose points of view you're exposed to. Right. And I wouldn't say that I had. I can't think of any history teachers that I had that were abysmal. I can think of some other teachers I had that were abysmal. No names I'm naming, but no history teachers. But there were definitely some that were much better than others and some that were okay. But I was able to really get into the material on my own. Others that I liked being in the classes, but I was always interested in history. So I was always going to be self-motivated. And I think that what's hard for me is when I meet a lot of people who say, I don't like history. And it's just, it's such a, it's a statement that if you actually really break down isn't it's not true like there's I don't think there's anybody who is literally only interested in the present and the future that there's always some aspect of something that means something to you and that you can connect with but it is very much how it's presented to you particularly when you're a kid and there's a lot of people who say 
yeah, I hate history. I hate the way it's presented. I hate, I just can't get into it. And I think that's where you get movies, television shows that come in that have this opportunity to tell histories, tell stories yeah. in, in a captivating way. Obviously, you then get into the issues of accuracy and storytelling versus truthfulness that you can debate for hours and hours with no end in sight. But I think that there are ways of presenting material that is interesting to 99.9% of the population. But it's about understanding that you're not going to be able to meet everybody in the same place. Everybody's going to have a different starting point. And I think the history, the teachers as a whole that I've had that I would say were not successful at various stages in my life were the ones who didn't do that, who expected everybody to be in the same place or everybody to have the same interest levels and weren't interested in approaching different students in a different way. And obviously, that's the hard part of being a teacher. That's part of the reason why I never wanted to do it. I was like, that looks hard. I'm not doing that. <laughs> But I think even teachers that I had in my graduate level courses, uh, I had some teachers who just had no interest whatsoever in hearing alternative perspectives from mm -hmm. students. We're only interested in, yeah, but that's not what we think. That's not how we do things. And I think that's the, the big problem with history is this is what's accepted and this is what everything else is garbage, which is difficult. It's a difficult world to be in when what you're trying to do is share information that a lot of people are probably going to find interesting. Right. And we gloss over so much of it. I'm interested in the Civil War, very stereotypical male interested in the Civil War. But like my wife has like no interest in, what, in that whatsoever because she's like, why do I care about General Sherman? Mm -hmm. Like that has no impact on my life. But maybe if there's a story behind that, mm -hmm. of especially a woman's story, yeah. that's like maybe she would connect with that better. Yeah. I Once know. you learn about how many women were traveling with the armies. Yeah. And we're literally like on the battlefield. And then those stories are not told. No. Until you look into it more and you say, right. oh, I think there's, this, there's a meme that says something about like, I hate movies and TV shows that only show men in history and only show men's stories. And then someone comments, even if it's, even if it's historically accurate. And then the answer is, yes, as we all know, women were invented 50 <laughs> years ago. It's just these, yeah. the stories that don't get told are the ones that have been, somebody decided, we're not going to tell those stories. Those stories aren't important. And I think my main goal has been to uncover all of the stories and figure out what was it actually like for these people at various stages of different status levels, different economic levels, different genders, what was their actual experience? And because we're not lucky enough to literally have diaries and memoirs written by absolutely everyone in history, sometimes you have to search around a little bit more to figure out, try and figure out what it might have been like for people. And I think one of the things that I loved growing up were, like you mentioned, Williamsburg, these sort of living history experiences. And I loved that because you actually got to see what life was actually like. It was a, oh, okay. So they weren't all out, you know, shooting people or in battles. It was, there's all this going on also. And these are the people who are involved in it. And particularly the women, because right. the stories are usually glossed over. I hope that's changing. I hope that for your daughters that there are a lot more women's stories told. But I know I'm, I follow a lot of women's history podcasts and blogs and Instagram accounts. And it's still very much, it's a huge issue. And I was lucky going to an all-girls school because we did 
focus a bit more on women's stories. But even then, it's, sometimes it's hard to find them in a lot of the literature that's out there. So the goal is to expand that and keep it expanding as we move forward. Right. So as we close out our conversation, when you think about the next year, five years and beyond, what are your plans for exploring Pasadena and you in general? My plan is to go on vacation <laughs> for a couple of weeks. <laughs> no, I think that what's interesting for my schedule is that so much of my schedule is looking ahead because when I work with museums, a lot of the planning is literally years in advance. So we're looking at, I'm talking to people about 2025, 2026 at this point, um, whereas I don't know what my schedule is going to look like at that point. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. And so it is living in two worlds almost. And exploring Pasadena has up to this point been malleable in the sense that I do what I can. I put what I can into it when I can. And We'll have to see how things um, develop in Pasadena. I would love to find more people to collaborate with, find more interesting projects to do, um, because that's really what gets me excited. But I think I am definitely one of those people who agrees to do way too much. So I try not to commit to anything that I don't have to commit to too far in advance. But I think I like seeing where things go. I like seeing... I like working with other people. I like I like it when someone brings up a different project that I hadn't thought about before. So I'm excited to see what happens in Pasadena, how different organizations recover from the pandemic, new ideas that might come up. And sometimes I jump onto something and I say, let's piggyback on that. And sometimes I think of things myself occasionally. So <laughs> we'll have to see. And I just, I love Pasadena and I love sharing information about Pasadena. So, but I also love learning about Pasadena. There's a lot of people who know very sort of niche material that I don't necessarily know about. So I think there's a lot of avenues that that can be opened up where more stories are shared and more spaces are opened that make history present and exciting. This is my final question. If you could design a perfect day in Pasadena from breakfast to late night, what would you do? Where would you go? And what would you eat and drink? Oof, when you sent me this, I was like, I'm going to have to think about this. And then I didn't. I send it to everybody <laughs> and it stumps everybody every time I say it. Yeah. There are no wrong answers. <laughs> I know. Um, it doesn't have to be Pasadena, but we, we're focusing on Pasadena, but it doesn't have to be Pasadena. Yeah, I think Pasadena is a place that I obviously grew up in so that I have a lot of a lot of places that I have childhood fond memories of we've always gone to the the brookside golf club restaurant for breakfast so that's always been a part of my childhood and then marston's also is a big family favorite so that's something when i think about oh let's go out for breakfast it's like in pasadena i typically think of old favorites as opposed to let's try all these new places and then i always one of my favorite things about Pasadena is just being outside in Pasadena. I love riding my bike around, mostly because there's not a lot of hills, so it's pretty easy gliding. I love the Huntington, which isn't technically in Pasadena, but we still yeah. claim it. I love Lacey Park and the area down by the Arroyo I like walking around in. And let's see. Obviously, if I feel like shopping, old Pasadena is great, but that's maybe not how I would spend my perfect day in Pasadena. I think there, there were definitely times in my life when I would have spent the entire day shopping, but nowadays I think <laughs> that's not quite as attractive. <laughs> no, there's, when we were kids, well, when I was a kid, I'll say, there was a movie theater down there where the Tiffany's is now. There were two movie theaters. Yeah, that's true. 
There was, yeah, where the Tiffany's yeah, there, is, yeah, I guess. seven years in Tibet in that movie theater. I saw Titanic in the other one, which is now a fancy movie theater, yeah, but didn't used to be a fancy movie theater. Used to be the theater. AMC. Yeah. And I always liked that one because you went down the escalator. It's so cool. Yeah. It's still cool. And you sort of, the stars above you. I always liked that one. And that is the first and last time I ever saw Titanic, actually. So I think that, like, when I think about Pasadena, I think about all of the different experiences that I've had. That's where I did this and that's where I saw this person or yeah. so I think there's a lot of a lot of personal fond memories in Pasadena that I have. I've always loved the Caltech campus. I grew up going there like it was a park. So I've had multiple picnics there. I've ridden my bike I learned how to ride a bike there. I've used to swim in the fountains. Don't get mad at me, Caltech, if you listen to this. But I've swum in all the fountains at Caltech. So I think, yeah, there's just, there's so many places. And I think my favorite time in Pasadena is when it's right about 80 degrees and you can be outside without a jacket, but it's not too hot. And that's perfect biking weather. So I just go around the city in loops, basically. Yeah, it's 72 degrees right now. I had to yeah, look So down. it needs to be a little bit warmer for me to be happy, <laughs> but it's still, it's good. <laughs> it's funny because I was driving from my office here and I drove by Caltech and I think it's something that we don't appreciate. And then you drive by and then people are taking pictures in front of the sign. You're like, oh yeah, this is important to some people. But I'm like, I, it's just a thing that I pass on my way to work. Yeah, you definitely go and hang out on the campus because it's really an incredible campus. It and is. It's so welcoming. It's nice that it has... I grew up in the area around Caltech. So this is like my entire childhood. I've spent so much time at Caltech. And apart from when I swam in the fountains, I was never told that I needed to leave or that I wasn't welcome there or anything. But it really has always been this ever-present space. And I used to ride my bike there and then to Lake Avenue when I was younger. And so, yeah, I think there's always those places that keep calling you back. When, when I didn't live in LA, when I lived in different parts of the world, coming home to Pasadena was always like a breath of fresh air. It was exhaling and relaxing and feeling the air and smelling Pasadena and, you know, experiencing this space that is welcoming and is relaxing in a lot of ways. Right now I live down in downtown LA and so the time I spend in Pasadena involves a lot more trees and plants which is always very nice to literally I guess come home to. So it's nice to have that both both sides are are met. Julia, thank you for sharing such wonderful stories about the area, for bringing Pasadena to life with your walking tours and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've really loved the conversation and thank you for reaching out. This is so exciting and I'm excited to see where Pasadena goes in the future. My many thanks to Julia for coming on the show. Since our recording, Julia shared some exciting news about her collaboration with the Pasadena Museum of History. She will be curating an exhibit celebrating the centennial of the museum entitled Lights, Camera, Action, Hollywood Magic in Pasadena. The exhibit will run from June 2024 to February 2025 and will spotlight the people and places from Pasadena and the surrounding communities that have helped shape the motion picture industry. With Julia at the helm, the exhibit will include objects representing movies, television, music videos, and more and will celebrate the entire creative process from the initial idea to the final display. Visit PasadenaHistory.org for the latest information. Please follow Julia on her Instagram account at exploring underscore Pasadena underscore experiences for news and announcements 
as well as her website, exploringpasadena.com. I'm personally so excited about this next generation of historians and curators. Like Julia, they are finding new and creative ways to connect people to our history, and I'm looking forward to the future of museums in all forms. Continuing our collaboration, the featured song is All Right Here by the Pasadena based wife and husband duo, The Next Doors. All Right Here is from Mika and Russell's debut album, Linda Vista, which was released last year. Please follow them on social media and at nextdoorsmusic.com for their next live shows. I recently shifted the show to the Acast platform from Spotify and am still in the process of figuring it all out. So my apologies for any technical or platform issues. I'm working on it. There are so many people that help keep the show going. First, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my wife for being so patient and understanding. And finally, to all that listen, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, Athletic Greens, or a meal kit. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, explore your hometown, wherever that may be, and as always, see you around town. No. No. Okay, Dad? Cut. Why don't you... They're weird. Okay, well, I'm going to start over. Start over. Okay. Do you like podcasts? No. Why don't you like podcasts? Because they are boring.